the fascist doesn't go everyone just kind of has their own position <laughs> and then and then mine is just genocide of a bunch of other people and that's just kind of agree live and let live i mean not you well, no but <laughs> Today is Will, Lillian, and Owen. Hey. Hi. Hey. And for today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, uh, Devin Zane Shaw. Hey, Devin. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. So Devin is regular faculty in the Department of Philosophy and Humanities at Douglas College, uh, the current vice president of negotiations for the Douglas College Faculty Association, and a frequent contributor to Three-Way Fight a blog about revolutionary anti-fascist analysis, strategy, and activism. He's written on a wide variety of topics, from Schelling's philosophy of art to egalitarian political philosophy from Descartes to Rancière. In 2021, he co-authored a book called On Necrocapitalism, a plague journal, which collected a series of essays by Devin and five other thinkers interested in developing a critical diagnosis of class struggle and communist horizons in light of the COVID pandemic. And in 2020, he wrote the book that we'll be talking about today, Philosophy of Anti-Fascism, Punching Nazis and Fighting White Supremacy. The book articulates a defense of militant anti-fascist organization and action. What distinguishes militant from liberal anti-fascism is that it's committed to what's called the diversity of tactics, or in other words, its willingness to use violence when necessary. Fascists, of course, are perfectly willing to use violence to achieve their aims. But liberal anti-fascists think that engaging in violent or physical confrontation makes us no better than them. By contrast, militant anti-fascists consider violence as one viable tool among others in the struggle to prevent far-right organization and recruitment and in pursuit of emancipatory community self-defense. To make the case for the legitimacy of emancipatory violence, Devin draws on numerous thinkers, including Franz Fanon, W.B. Du Bois, and Jacques Rancière, but a considerable part of the book engages with the work of Simone de Beauvoir. In The Ethics of Ambiguity, Beauvoir describes human being as engaged in an endless movement of liberation, in which my own freedom is necessarily bound up with the freedom of others. In a world such as ours, profoundly shaped by the historical and still ongoing projects of capital accumulation and settler colonialism, the situation in which we find ourselves is one marked by deep divisions between oppressors and oppressed, divisions that are upheld by violence and which reproduces it structurally. Yet this state of affairs is presented ideologically as normal or as natural, so that any violent action appears to be an aberrant deviation from the nonviolent norm. Beauvoir is highly sensitive, appropriately enough, to the ambiguities of acting under such conditions. To avoid living and acting in bad faith, it is necessary to take a stand against the conditions of oppression. There is no neutral position, no staying above the fray. But to use violence 
does mean to treat others as things, as objects, precisely that for which the oppressor is denounced in the first place. Yet Beauvoir does not conclude, as liberals do, that violence is therefore wholly unacceptable. Rather, she hones in on the antinomies of this kind of action, which stands in fundamental tension with itself, but which cannot be renounced, an ambiguous condition from which there is no escape for anyone for whom freedom is at stake. Meanwhile, fascists are organizing and targeting the most marginalized, dispossessed, and vulnerable members of society, people of color, people who exist outside the norms of heteropatriarchy, today trans people especially, the poor, migrants, indigenous, and First Nations people. As Devin explains, fascists can be system loyal or willing to abide by the standard rules of civil society, but this is not a real principle for them. When they think it serves their interests or when they feel that the system is not giving them all that they deserve, they will become insurgent, seeking to reinforce hierarchical oppressive structures through violent insurrectionary means. Anti-fascists, then, are confronted with the question of whether it is sufficient to try to defend the oppressed with only the tools handed them by that same civil society in the state. Reasonable discourse. Polite disagreement. Maybe you call the cops. Devin argues, persuasively, I think, that this liberal anti-fascist approach is in bad faith. With fascists, there is no polite disagreement as though this were just a matter of differences of opinion that could be worked out over dinner. Uh, in fact, Devin's chapter on punching Nazis opens with an old joke. Uh, what do you call 10 people sitting at a dinner table with a Nazi? And the answer is 11 Nazis. <laughs> now, this line of reasoning doesn't license just any and all violence. For the militant anti-fascist, violence is a means that must be carefully considered and used only when necessary for appropriate ends. But sometimes, Devin argues, it is indeed necessary as a matter of community self-defense and as an emancipatory act of struggle against the violent forces of oppression. Um, I'm hoping we'll talk a bit about the question of evaluation, right? You know, this question of when it is that violence becomes necessary, how you evaluate it. What the liberal doesn't understand is that the background conditions are themselves already violent and they fail to see the role of the state in perpetuating a sometimes quietly, sometimes overtly violent status quo. This is why Devin elaborates the concept of the three-way fight. Anti-fascists must struggle not only against fascists, but also against the state with its monopoly on violence, in its function as the guarantor of conditions of ongoing dispossession and accumulation, and with its liberal defenders. So I'm going to stop here and ask you, Devin, uh, if you could elaborate a little bit on this concept of the three-way fight. Can you explain a little bit more about what's involved in it, uh, where it comes from maybe, and, and why you think it's an important concept for understanding the present conjuncture? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a great introduction that captures a lot of the key points out of the book. So the three-way fight um, is a particular approach to understanding anti-fascism and fascism, and the, the three-way fight project as we would know it by looking at the blog and looking at the authors related to it, kind of emerges somewhere between 1998 and about 2002. It grows out of a, um, a minority tendency in anti-racist action. So it's, it's a smaller group of people within the ARA that kind of formulate it like this. Uh, and then they, they 
produced this blog after a few back in the day, right? Even you can see how life changes so quickly. When I say back in the day and referring to this, it's it's position papers that were circulated, right? You'd photocopy these these gigantic documents and send them around to everyone and then someone would write back with comments. And then eventually some of these ended up in a book. So there there's a particular tendency that's developed over time. Um, I adopted it in the book. I, I think I read some of this stuff back you know, in the at the same time I said, but I don't have any of the ephemera, but it, it looked really familiar. And I think there was some websites I used to go to. And what happened here, at least in the genesis of the book, is I was unhappy with a lot of the historical accounts of fascism or Marxist accounts. And so a friend of mine was like, you know, you really should look at this stuff because I think this is what your position is closest to that you're struggling with doing. So it's the three-way fight is the basic concept that there is a struggle between three obviously more, but three basic actors or social agents or social forces. There's militant anti-fascism, there's the state or liberal anti-fascism, and then there's the far right itself. Um, and, and each of these, you have to be aware of both the other quote-unquote enemies. And it emerged out of a particular discussion, at least as I see it. I, I've talked to a few people that, you know, what, what motivated their initial position papers, and don't get me wrong, they, they have different ideas about what, what motivated them, but I view it as a very simple problem. Why were right-wingers showing up to anti-globalization movements is one of the questions they were trying to answer. What are they trying to accomplish? That places it right in 1998 or so with the battle in Seattle. And it kind of closes the discussion um, in 2001 and 2002 as people come to grips with 9-11 with and the war on terror, right? There's a window where this stuff emerges. And so, you know, the question was, are these people that are, you know, the Pat Buchananite types that, that are, quote unquote, what people view to be like white workers or the average worker or whatever, are they part of the struggle in the same way that radicals are? And the answer was no. In the sense of these far-right groups, it's not necessarily always the Buchananites. I'm going to get too deep into the weeds. Let's just scratch that part. <laughs> I don't want to just start diving into all the different particular groups that were present, because some of them are now gone. Um, in the same way, we're all going to forget Richard Spencer um, somewhere down the road and go, what? Who was that? When did that all get God started? Willing. That was strange. <laughs> May his name be blotted out from under the sun. <laughs> um, but basically what happened was, what seemed to be happening was we were looking at, they were looking at, the emergence of a kind of autonomous far-right movement that had a potentially popular base. And the question was, what is the relationship of that to revolutionary struggle? And the conclusion was that this is something else, so we need to mark what this something else is. And so I think the easiest way to start this discussion is just to put the definition of fascism that, that I use that comes out of this three-way fight part right on the table, right at the start, so listeners will know exactly what we're referring to. And this is from the seven theses uh, on the three-way fight that I, I wrote. Fascism is a social movement involving a relatively autonomous and insurgent, potentially mass base, driven by an authoritarian vision of collective rebirth that challenges bourgeois institutional and cultural power while re-entrenching economic and social hierarchies. Now, there's a lot in there. But the first part that I think is really the sort of generative moment in the three-way fight position and was also important to the Sojourner Truth Organization when they were revising their view of fascism in the late 70s and early 80s was this idea that it's a social movement that has a potential mass base and that it's autonomous from capital, 
because a lot of the classic definitions, Marxist definitions of fascism, were that these were the lackeys of, ca of, of the most extreme capitalists. And, you know, when you talk to ARA people or people that were in this, um, and I've d done some of that since writing this book, you know, they'll say, to us it made no sense because you're looking at people, these are not capitalists you're fighting on the streets and you're trying to find the motivation they have for their own particular thing. So there's some kind of social movement that is that is critical of the state as it is, even though it's not, I would just blatantly say from our perspective, it's incorrect. But it's autonomous from the kind of class definitions we might try to give or the, the power relationship where we just say they're just the lackeys that do the bidding of. Well, they, they have their own dangerous autonomous capacity. And what is it they're against? Well, one of the key things is... Uh, in my view, it their their big challenge is even though they would never use the word bourgeois to put this in there, but it's bourgeois institutional and cultural power. And very commonly, as we see, they're aiming at bourgeois cultural power. So everything when they attack equality or diversity or inclusion, they're looking at kind of EDI in the same way that acronym pops up in corporate structures. And I, that's why I chose that kind of phrasing, is they view it to be this really radical thing. But really what they're only looking at is the capture of this in these bourgeois institutional and cultural forms, which I'm, I'm hinting at to say the militant perspective is obviously, militant anti-fascism is obviously very far away from those kinds of measures. And so that's just an easy way to say that we can categorize there's a difference. Can also say there's quite a few similarities in some of these corners. So, militant anti-fascists and liberal anti-fascists are egalitarian in general. However, what they mean by equality is very different. Mm -hmm. The liberal anti-fascist or settler state project has a lot in common with the far right in the sense that they both reaffirm a kind of settler state hegemony in places like North America. So Canada and the United States is what I largely focus on, although I think that this can be expanded in various directions. And the last thing I explain is one thing you can see, this helps explain horseshoe theory, is that the liberal sees uh, two different insurgent groups and sort of proposes that they're extremes that touch at the end of the horseshoe. But that's, that's literally all they have in common is this kind of insurgent anti-state feature here, even if it's a limited anti-state feature. But there's no ideological connection. And one of the things that I've got a real gripe with that obviously shows up very early in this book is that by just focusing on tactics in this kind of description, the entire politics disappears. And, and the specificity of fascism and the specificity of revolutionary anti-fascism is, is ignored or blurred for a political purpose, and you got to call people out for that. So I kind of got too deep into the weeds there, but, know. Uh, you know. That was great. So basically what I was kind of understanding with uh, this notion of the three-way fight, I, I actually thought this kind of illuminating because we might think of liberal anti-fascism as, you know, uh, a part of the, of the status quo, um, the idea that our institutions are not perfect, but our institutions are perfect given the imperfect creatures that we are. This is why you know we, we need things like reason discourse, we need things like law and order. If you're going to have disagreements, make sure you vote, make sure you try to persuade. And so what we're, we're seeing in the, the, the other two parts of, of the triangle here, which is you know, um, what you call uh, the fascist position and militant anti-fascist positions, the one thing, it's a really a formal similarity, is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. And what I actually thought was um, really interesting here is that, you know, this kind of breaks apart the sort of um, blinders that are put on where, you know, the liberal anti-fascist is going to say something like, either 
you go along with you know, our measures or you're in favor of you know, some sort of anarchy and social collapse. And part of what I thought you were getting at with this book is that the militant anti-fascist is also trying to offer an alternative ethos, an alternative you know, of mode of collective action that isn't simply either we have relatively reliable um, institutional life or we just have the decay of life that the fascists are talking about. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about, you know, um, what you call the sort of subjectivation that you can find in um, militant anti-fascists. And by subjectivation, I just want to be, be clear because that sounds like jargon, is, you know, a, a notion of creating new bonds of solidarity and um, collective self-recognition. And you um, not only look at Beauvoir, but, you know, you describe Fanon as describing this moment where the resistance against fascist or right-wing forces is not only about persuading the other side, but often is also about creating a sense of, of a we, a group agent that can do things. And uh, I was wondering if you could just speak to a bit more about you know this notion of subjectivation that can happen in militant anti-fascism. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, there's a really important point. I'm glad you caught this because it's one that I often overlook, but I actually think is extremely important. And discussions always go in a different direction. Unfortunately, you caught this really early on. <laughs> Um, one of the big things I take out of Fanon, and, and this comes out of reading it, I'm sorry I always talk like I'm assigning homework to everybody, but I read you know, Glenn Coulthard's book, right, Red Skin, White Masks, and one of the things that he pulled out of Fanon that I think is absolutely essential is this what I call the circuit of recognition. And one of the ways that many people talk about recognition is this concept of what the oppressed seeks is recognition by the oppressor or what the marginalized seeks is recognition by the dominant. And liberal anti-fascism is totally tied into this. And Coulthard said, this is, you're looking at the wrong angle for getting Fanon here. Fanon's talking about the circuit of recognition among the oppressed or marginalized themselves, is that what they're doing is constituting themselves as subjects. So things we might view as quote-unquote failures uh, we might call in the liberal circuit of recognition are not failures for the for a militant um, circle of subjectivation or recognition because what it is is it's building the community or the group and I think that's an extremely important point to Fanon um, and I think a lot of the criticisms of his work rest on the wrong understanding of, of recognition and as I point out in the book and as you have seen here is that Beauvoir kind of starts with one where then she kind of moves to the other. And I think that helps make sense of the development of her work as well. In terms of the actual, I don't, I mean, I don't know if there's an empirical component here. I always struggle to talk about that part because I don't like to talk about some of these groups that I've worked with. But I, I think one of the common things you see is that, that circle of uh, amongst the marginalized, their own recognition uh, amongst themselves. And I don't mean this, and this is extremely important to the entire book, so I'll throw this point out right at the beginning. I do not mean this in the sense of a homogenous group comes to recognize itself. Um, mm -hmm. I mean it in the sense that people in the identities that have been forged in society as they're recognized start to see that reified sense of identity start to fall away and a new one emerge. And I think that's extremely important because you see groups work. There's a lot of talk about anti-fascists being white male cis dudes out to rumble. And don't get me wrong, there's clearly some of that in the mix. So I'm never trying to say those people don't exist or they're not there or they're not whatever. And I don't want to explain them away or deny their existence. But like that doesn't track with my experience at all. I don't like revealing kind of what 
sociological makeup there is of those groups. But what I will say is um, Stanislav Vysotsky's uh, American Antifa does some of the ethnographic research. And so um, I guess the summary I would say is when, when people say, and he backs this up, there's a lot of queer folks in anti-fascism. And, and I think you should, everyone needs to learn a lesson from that because that means gender and sexuality is right at the core idea of those people who organize and identify early, right? They go, oh, something's up. And it's like, well, even my own book, I put my own book in this. One of the big traps of anti-fascism is fascists commonly talk about race and foreground everything in terms of race. So the first thing you do is respond to explain what's going on there, and you often focus on racial categories. However, gender and sexuality are absolutely important to this story, and so it's one of the ongoing places where people go to look. And And one thing I commonly point at in the settler colonial, I will assign homework here, in the settler colonial context is I always tell people in Canada, I'm like, go read Leanne Simpson's As We Have Always Done, and you'll see the component of the attack on women as the core component of a certain phase of settler colonialism. And it'll help you start unlocking all the pieces about how this starts to work, where she looks at the way that, what is it, the Bureau of Indian Affairs goes in and starts tearing apart these communities by inter- introducing wedges into gendered components of governance or or practices um, and then creating a hierarchy where there was, you might say, a dispersal of power. And you read that and it, it really helps you understand a lot of these aspects of settler colonialism. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, like in our context today, like it seems pretty clear that like, like I mentioned in my intro, like trans people in particular are like the central target of a lot of fascist agitprop today like you know you've got these far-right reactionary like white christo fascists but like they just can't stop talking about trans people like it's 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 like core to the messaging and the kind of organizational principle it seems not of course that this is disarticulated from race entirely or that there isn't like a class component but i think that you're right to point to that if I could ask a question, though, you mentioned something, and that is that in the triangle, there are things that each of the corners have in common and things that they diverge from one another with quite substantially. And you said that both liberal and militant anti-fascism is broadly egalitarian, but that they have sort of different concepts or understandings of equality. So could you unpack that a little bit? Like, what are the differences in in how the liberal versus the militant anti-fascist understands equality or like what's at stake in an egalitarian movement? Yeah, that's a that's a good question as well. That's kind of the third chapter that nobody reads <laughs> about Ranciere. Um Oh, I thought you were about to say the third chapter of your book. I'm like, you could have assigned it. Like, do you read it? Like, oh, no. you're it, it is. A, no, no. I, I've. You know what? You listen to your readers, and when readers are like, "Eh," kind of move quickly right past chapter three into the rest. I'm, okay, I get you. Um, <laughs> I'm I get le- it. listening. I'm learning. I glanced at it. I was into the Rossier stuff. So it's it's a treat for everyone who was, um, and somehow that 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 field stalled, and kind of just stop somewhere. But uh, the question about equality is important in the sense that, and this sometimes puts me at odds with um, some other militant anti-fascist people in the sense that I'm going to give credit where credit is due, is there's certainly a nebulous feeling about egalitarianism that is recognized and in liberal anti-fascism or liberal ideology that, that isn't just window dressing. Mm. One thing you can see is the way that that if liberals are about, like the liberal ideological discourse is about um, 
is about persuasion or about appealing to principles. One of the ways we see civil rights movements over time, certain civil rights movements end up getting a foothold in, the, in changing something, is very often that appeal to equality, right? And so it's kind of like one of those, okay, the, like they're like, oh, I'm, is this equality or is it not? Oh, it is equality. Okay, we got to change the way things work here because it's it, it, it like is how equality. you got <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Um, so there is definitely that aspect. Um, and, and so it's a formal one though, right? It's right. equality before the law is I think the easiest way to subsume that kind of discussion or that there's um, that you remove what are perceived to be obstacles to the smooth functioning of that ideology where you'd say, and this is one of the things I think is really funny about this moral panic about critical race theory, which was around for a little bit and, and kind of already got pushed beyond, was you go back and you read some of the, the original critical race theory stuff that's very legal, right? It's about legal scholarship yep. where they talk about things like it's but for this, right? That's a kind of liberal account of equality where mm -hmm. it's like you would be included in society but for this feature that marginalizes you and what we do is we correct the but for but for being a woman but for blackness or the intersectional aspect of it is to go the problem is it's looked at as one axis so we have to we have to look at it in a multiple multiple axis way okay well that's fine for legal understanding within this these kinds of parameters and i give credit to like cheryl harris for example because she starts really pushing outside of that kind of thing when trying to understand whiteness as a kind of entitlement that's built into the law and is trying to push kind of into its sociological parameters i still think it's a great paper it's influential in indigenous studies um, and that's how i found my way back to it is that for indigenous studies which often commonly has to look at legal issues regarding this stuff these are some of the the formative papers that they'll they'll look at and that one does handle settler colonialism in its own way so that's why i mentioned that particular one but you know the the question here is about what the, what are the militants up to as well um it is the component of a broader sense of egalitarianism in this book it talks quite a bit about ranciere and intellectual equality in the way that he frames it but i always point out egalitarianism has a bigger militant and revolutionary aspect of extirpating the conditions of inequality um that um, i would still argue is in ranciere's work but that lots of people sort of are unsure about but I wanted to make sure no one can say that about me so I always point out this is also about economic inequality and not in the redistributive kind of way but in the actual um, the actual control of the means of production so we are heading right back into classic um, revolutionary terrain with that yeah one of the uh, one of the things I liked that you pointed out was the strategic inefficacy too of like liberal claims to egalitarianism because you point out how easy they are for at least at a discursive level for people on the far right to co-opt them right they love like making claims that this is all about their rights they're just asserting themselves as you know they want to be equal to white lives also matter and all this kind of stuff and they, they will use the kind of langu language of rights and the language egalitarian kind of language but in total bad faith because you point to a bunch of places where they will themselves admit that they, like they don't actually give a crap about free speech they don't give a crap about about what what x y and z rights um and that they're just looking to weaponize these elements of bourgeois or liberal um egalitarianism and, and yeah again in total bad faith i think it's a very important point because when they talk amongst themselves there's i've read some of the stuff i actually don't cite the worst ones um but they really say this is all just to get the liberal or the normies, some of those languages they use amongst themselves, <laughs> is to get them into the point where where they get into a moral morass, where it gives it credibility if you if they don't have an answer. So they go, all you want to do is get 
undermine an assumption they're working on or confuse them and then and then you've gained legitimacy because all of a sudden they have to work it out. Like you said, the one about, well, what about our interests? Well, it's an easy assumption to point out that these are not zero sum. And the, the premise that the hidden premise of the far right discourse is there's a idea that rights are a zero sum mm. thing that some people have and take away from others and that's it. I mean, they understand that they, these are these are things that, like we might say they're like liberal contradictions of this stuff where they go, oh, how do I handle it? Well. These are the mm. these are some of the solutions. It's not zero sum. Hey, that's uh, basically that. But it's it's actually it's instead of engaging the the assumptions, you get caught up in trying to refute the actual content of a bad faith argument. I mean, I always go back to uh, Sartre's, and you cited to the anti-Semite and Jew, right? Where he's like, and as you say, I think in the book, you're like, it's actually an interesting claim. You, you think that the book actually could have just he could have used the word fascist every time he uses the word anti-Semite, but that maybe because of the sort of post-war moment where he's writing the thing, anti-Semitism had more sort of traction or purchase. It seemed to may have seemed to readers that fascism wasn't worth talking about still. But he says at any rate, right, that the anti-Semite like, has the right to play. They don't t- they're not being serious. They don't have to follow the rules of discourse when the liberal does. And there's a kind of, um, there's a, like you say, a, mo- a moral confusion or yeah, getting stuck in the weeds where now you have to like, take their obviously bad faith claims at face value in order to try to respond to them. And it just doesn't work. And they um, pull you down into the muck of irrationality. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, like when they talk amongst themselves, they're like, yeah, we don't give a shit. Of course not. We don't care about free speech and sort of, you know, why would they? Could you say, um, just for our listeners, um, are you using bad faith in the technical existentialist sense? Because I'd like to also talk a bit about, you know, your engagement with Beauvoir mm-hmm. and, and all of all events. So are you saying like the fascists, when they're engaging in bad faith, is it, you know, simply they're, they're not being honest or is there a more critical use you're, you're thinking about here? And how does the militant anti-fascist, you know, how are they not in bad faith? Because I was actually about to say, because, you know, it seems like one of the famous things, at least with Sartre, I think less with Beauvoir, is that, you know, Sartre seems like he wasn't actually really sure we could get out of bad faith. Um, he had a really hard time finding the positive ethics. Uh, he kept promising it. He had that notebooks on ethics that he, you know, was, goes for like 500 pages, never finished. I think, you know, Beauvoir does get to some positive account. But I'm just wondering, so how are you thinking about bad faith and why that might be a critical term for, for these discussions? Yeah, so the the bad faith thing, um, I, I'm going to admit, uh, as someone who's read existentialism for a long time, um, I sort of stand out because I always kind of say I'm not quite sure what they want to get at when they talk about bad faith because the meaning of the term changes so often. Because we have the classic definition of uh, a form of self-deception where one flees their freedom or responsibility, right? But then the, the problem that I've always had is... but how exactly do we get into that? And I, I always focus on the part where, where Sartre, the part that everyone tries to stay away from because it's extremely confusing, um, but I think is actually applicable to anti-Semite and Jew and to Beauvoir's book and to the notebook on an ethics that Sartre never finished, um, is this stuff about evidence. Because part of it is this kind of difficult discussion where uh, one of the idiosyncrasies of Sartre's being and nothingness is sometimes to use terms in a very idiosyncratic way, not quite explain them all. And there's this big sort of discussion of evidence and what's going on there. And I think that's the really helpful part to understanding one thread, which is basically to say, 
as I think you actually see an anti-Semite and Jew and you see Beauvoir in, in Ethics of Ambiguity, is the concept of something like, if evidence doesn't satisfy a view that I have, then I must believe that it's not a problem with my view, but evidence in general. Mm. So all evidence, if my view is wrong, all evidence is bad or relative. And so what happens here is when he talks about the anti-Semite being in bad faith, that's the, that's the way he's talking about it, is he's saying they present evidence as if all evidence is bad. So there is this extremely relativistic thinking in the sense where, and deep down it's not in a sense. Like uh, the fascist doesn't go, everyone just kind of has their own position. <laughs> and, then, and then mine is just, genocide of a bunch of other people and that's just kind of agree live and let live i mean not you well, no but <laughs> let me live <laughs> but yeah so deep down they do have a, a kind of objective theory where you know they're absolutely right but their rhetorical strategy is to kind of attack evidence Mm. Right. And okay. just say, what is the evidence that we're trying to get at? Well, it's all murky and relative. And that may be the thing for you. But my thing is a little different. And that's that's, I think, one of the core components of that. I mean, I think you can just layer the, the levels of bad faith that happen in there is that you can find, you know, the, their classic description of the anti-Semite is the person who believes that their actions are like the same way that you would pick up a rock and throw it into a pond or something or try to skip it over the water or something. Is there just an object in the world of other objects? And so mm. when they get caught up in the anti-Semitic passions and they commit a pogrom, they treat it like, you know, I just got caught up in causality and there I was, you know, committing committing atrocities and, and, and that's how it if was. You, if you hadn't done X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't have been pushed to do these things. Yeah. So one of one of the classic conceptions is that, right? Well, if you weren't fighting so hard for civil rights, I wouldn't have had to go out and be a reactionary and put on a Klan outfit or do whatever <laughs> kind of thing. So there's that kind of component. Now, the one I think you're referencing, though, is a little different in the idea of bad faith is treating another as an object. And that emerges in the notebooks for an ethics. It, it, it actually is a sustained part of Chapter 4 because the Sartre scholar Ron Santoni largely focuses on on that kind of definition and then read Sartre's work in general with that and so if you if you really plunge through it you'll see there's kind of two planks to that argument one is that's one definition Sartre gives that doesn't necessarily apply to all of Sartre's work because it's also from an unpublished work that he's trying to handle this and it may apply only in a very limited case of a type of action and the second is Beauvoir never quite accepts that Mm-hmm. as uh, the definition of bad faith. And so there is some open debate in Beauvoir scholarship about what exactly she was getting at, but she does have a problem with treating something as a thing, right? There's aspects of that that are in there, but she also, if you reconstruct the argument, and I'm still working on this, I'm still writing about ethics of ambiguity, trying to pick up some of these threads, there's got to be a way in her view that in which it's okay to use someone as a means to an end. So there's there's clearly a problem where she's trying to sort that out in her language of you treating another as an object. And I try to work out a way in an unpublished piece um, that you may hear about later in this discussion. But there are certain ways that she is against it. And I talk about that as a classification of existential violence. And I think where bad faith emerges for her in this is to say, it's not treating one as an object, but it's using that as explanatory power. Hmm. 
for your actions where you can you can sort of write it off that we had to do it this way we had to suppress the oppressor and remove responsibility or freedom from it as if as if it was like and there was a thing we had to do it that's how it had to happen without saying we we took a big risk in means and ends and i think it's mm-hmm. that's the level where she might situate it and that's kind of the level where i try to handle it and say when we're this is why I think she's so good and why ambiguity is so utterly crucial to understanding her work is it's just meaning must constantly be one that in a situation of oppression that you can't act for some without acting against others. So you're always presented with all these dilemmas or, or antinomies of action in the mix that you've got to sort out. And there's no one final answer because that would mean that you can ca- like you can cover off uh, a meaning once and for all that meaning can always be lost. I wanted to ask you more about the distinction between militant and liberal anti-fascism, if that's okay. Because I feel like throughout this conversation, we've been kind of taking for granted that that distinction works. And I, I honestly felt pretty puzzled by it throughout the text that we read, in the sense that if I had read this in 2014, I would have thought that was the state of affairs. And I, I I don't think it is anymore, or it's not obvious to me that it is. And I wondered if there is a third thing called like radical liberal anti-fascism. And like, I, I, it's more intuitive to me that the militant anti-fascism mainstreamed into liberalism quite a bit after 2015. And in that sense, it felt kind of like like it was a, a distinction that needed to be held on to to make sense of certain arguments, but not the only possibility. Like, I'm not sure. I, I don't know, just like anti-fascism became what liberalism was about after 2015. And then suddenly you got these defenses of Antifa. And it just strikes me that no, these arguments about neutrality and rights and both sideism, I don't know, it's not the discourse right now. And so I'm, I'm wondering if like, there's how to make sense of that or not. Like if you really, cause I just don't see like the liberals that are making the arguments that you identify in the book tend to be accused by other liberals, like radical liberals as being like right-wing agitprop or whatever. Liberalism isn't making these arguments about both sides and reasonable debate in the way that it was in the past. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just wondering if for about some feedback about that because it, it felt like a distinction that had to be made for a certain set of points to come across, and I wondered if it was still true. I mean, are people still reading Jason Stanley? That's my flippant question. But I, there's a more serious one. I know I, I'm being yeah, sort I mean, of like, flippant, I just right? Don't, I don't really want the flippant stuff because I've never read Jason Stanley, and I, I do think that a kind of like militant endorsement, you know, like. On the left, when I was involved in like anti-fascism organizing, Antifa was like super controversial, like among us. Antifa became like if like that became a mainstreamed way of like vocalizing opposition to Trump and these kind of like norms of civility, you know, people would complain about the right not like not being normal, not engaging in them. But I don't think those have the same pull in our political discourse. Like the idea that you just need to shut things down or whatever, like, 
and you were talking about deplatforming in the book. It, t- it just strikes me that that is like the mainstream liberal view, that that's okay. There's like a few outliers that are vocal that people attack and again call right-wing agitprop. I just don't see like the liberal ideological world aligning with that. And I, I, I sense that like the left feels like it needs to make Like there's always this process of making distinctions, liberals versus the left. Oh, the liberals do this, but we're like this. The liberals do this, but we we do this. I don't think it's quite true a lot. Like I think the ideological waters have changed quite a bit since 2016. And I mean, if you just think that just can't be true or whatever, you know, fine. I just, um, I think there's enough people like wondering about this and about the kind of status of this kind of like radical militant liberalism, its limits, its ideological shape, how it relates to the left. Some people want to reject it. Other people want to say, yes, but we're still different. And it strikes me that this is really at the heart of a lot of debates on the liberal left more broadly. And I think it would be kind of nice to encounter that because I think it's very comfortable to be like, the liberals do this thing, we obviously do this other thing. So the less flippant one is that this has been something I've been talking about as watching the post-Trump era. And so it's interesting that you see it this way, because I've noticed that actually quite a few people kind of went, well, that's that fascist threat's gone, and so whatever we're encountering is different now. And so with that threat gone, we can kind of go back to discourse. We can go back to, in many ways, I would just call it salvaging the American project in the US or salvaging the Canadian project through the left. And I'm thinking in particular of other people that were involved in militant organizing or in writing who have lapsed into doing stuff like, well, I'm going from doing militant work to I'm going to go work in extremism studies where what we I go in to study the far right, and then down the road, I'm talking about the the quote-unquote far left and far right in a security state discourse. I think 2015 or 2016 to 2020 represented a point of crisis. You found a lot of people ended up outside of their comfort zones and going out in the streets and doing this kind of stuff. And then I'm trying to just describe how is it that the people, some people end up going back to what would be the, the stronger comfort zone of the discourse, don't use violence, don't use, because the, the threat has passed. Because what I view, from their position, the threat was fascism in power was the problem, and not that there's an autonomous far-right movement that exists whether or not fascism is in power, in their view. And all I see is that the groups sort of go their own separate ways where there are still people tracking some of the stuff. They're still trying to do militant work. They're still doing self-defense and other people who've said the threat is passed. And so the next thing is to go here or to do this. And I think there's a, there's a distinction there. I, I think, yes, there's a way where this discourse changed, but what I'm trying to track is the, the danger of normalization. And I view this question in continuity with the way that people handled the uprising that happened in the summer of 2020. Um, And there was a distinct position between people who were like, get out in the streets and ignore this good protester, bad protester nonsense and get out there and it's an uprising. And the people who started saying, vote for Biden because that's going to solve it. And we had a concerted intellectual effort amongst philosophers and social theorists and so on and so forth, who started positioning themselves as Voting for Biden is an anti-fascist vote. Those are two very different perspectives. Your Cornell West, for instance, I remember him 
tweeting about anti-fascist votes. And uh, you could see some of that from Angela Davis. You had that from a couple other prominent people who I think I'm forgetting, Judith Butler. There's quite a few people who were saying, well, if you want something to stick from this in summer 2020, you got to vote because then that'll stick. And the, the obvious question is, Biden is the architect of much of this carceral state uh, as we recognize it because he was years ago bragging about, if you got this thing that's putting people away, Biden put his name on it kind of stuff, right? And you can put, take whatever name you want for those. There's a difference. Whatever those people are doing, it's different. The one thing I, I, I'd like to say, at least in my defense, is... I really struggle with using the term liberal anti-fascism because the number of political personalities that stake their whole thing on owning the libs. And that's not my view. I, you have to have a positive ground of what you think you're doing, and then you can critique. And that's why liberal ideology, I don't even like saying it like that because it has that kind of negative connotation. There's something to it. I'm not against that. That's you know, like I, I sort of made the flippant joke about Jason Stanley. I can at least give him credit. We've had a pretty extensive back and forth after I reviewed his book where he's been willing to give his time in, in what is sometimes some very, like I'm pushy in this D, these DMs every once in a while when they're around. He's putting up with a fairly pushy position because I'm saying we had a common ground at looking at Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Let's Let's hash this out a little bit. I'm trying to be respectful of the liberal anti-fascist position while identifying its limits and whether I succeeded is is up to people other than me. But I, I do think, I mean, I take Jason's book seriously, even though I've got disagreement with it. Judith Butler's Force of Nonviolence, I wrote a very long paper that's going to hopefully come out eventually soon. People will go, oh, that's just postmodernism or whatever. Put that aside. That's anti-intellectual rubbish. Let's get into Butler's argument. Let's really do this where we look at what they're saying and comb through all of the text and the concepts to preserve concepts like care, interdependency, and a bunch of these things that, that some people that are more orthodox Marxists would dispense with as sort of post-structuralist or rad lib concepts or something. No, let's, what, what if we need interdependency? What if we need these things? Let's rescue all of this stuff and show that it works. Let's find, drill down to the part of the argument where something goes wrong. And so, you know, I really try to put the effort into that. And again, that's up to others to see, because I, I, I do think it's a problem when leftists just want to own the libs and yeah. that's their whole thing. Because next thing you know, they're doing, they find their buddies on the right and they've shifted and they're trying to argue. It must have, it was, well, as William yeah. said earlier, if you weren't so radical, I would have still been a leftist. What? No. People annoy me all the time, and I somehow still hold to my <laughs> principles. I, don't know, I just don't have much patience for that. But I do want to, you know, I'm sorry to jump in here, but I, I, I don't want to miss actually a part of the book that I thought was really interesting that I, I do, you know, think is a break with liberalism writ large, which is, you know, you bring up rather controversially, and I'm saying it's controversially because um, a philosopher, he's now over in Scotland, he wants you to do a radio interview on Robert Williams' Negroes with Guns, and all these conservatives, you know, pretty much just like ruined his life and all of that. But, you know, this emphasis on the capacity for self-defense. So I understand why, you know, some people, especially in the academy, but I think sometimes people in the academy, they can be really loose with violence. Like, yeah, let's just do violence. And I, I've, even with the way that they use Fanon, you know, I think everyone in the podcast knows I get squeamish about people talking cavalierly about violence because I think sometimes there isn't a reckoning with what, what that means, what that does to the person who actually commits violence. 
into. I'm a big fan of talking about the end of Wretched of the Earth, where, you know, they're just these people who are completely shattered by the war. And it's hard to think, square that with Fanon's description of violence in the beginning, where it seems to be a cleansing force. So I want to say there is that aspect in the Academy, but I also think you notice that in the Academy, there's this obviousness that violence is not the answer. It could serve no possible social good. And what happens in Robert Williams' Negroes with Guns is he actually makes an argument, uh, granted this is 1950s, 1960s, I believe, of, you know, black people should arm themselves to defend their community. And this notion of self-defense in, in the face of at least potential social violence, I guess I don't see as much of that in liberal discourse of saying, if the state can't do it, communities should defend themselves. I mean, we recently, you know, this guy uh, at CPAC, the big conservative conference, was talking about transgenderism, then he says, as an ideology, needs to be eradicated from public life. Yeah, you know, Knowles. that's pretty startling, startling language. He says, I didn't mean anything genocidal. I meant the ideology. I didn't mean the people. Whatever. Fine. This is the you know these are people playing games with words, but you know I'm I'm wondering about this emphasis on what would it mean for communities to say that the state should not have the monopoly on self-defense, that communities also need to be organized enough to defend themselves. So I want to be clear before people jump all over me as if I'm some radical saying we should all get guns or anything like that. What instead I am saying is. I think it's an important question of how people become organized in order to defend themselves when it seems as if state structures either can't or won't do so. And I, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, because I, I don't hear much about this notion of self-defense pretty much at all. And I was wondering, so what, what were you picking up from, you know, Robert Williams's Negroes with Guns and this notion of, you know, collective self-defense that I think you saw as, you know, challenging the state's monopoly on violence. So do you think that that's still an important potential aspect of militant anti-fascism in the contemporary moment? Or was that, you know, a past historical moment that now we need to start thinking in other ways? I think the question of self-defense is an important one. I think it at all times if we consider it in a particular way. So I'll just, one of the things I've worked on doing is is defining self-defense. And so uh, I'm just going to mention that I, I view that there's two concepts of it. So the first one is the common sense notion of self-defense, which is the one, and I teach it like this too. This is kind of where it came from, because I'll say, what do you guys think self-defense is? And students almost to the entirety of all of them, um, will come up with components of this definition. The common sense notion conceives of self-defense as an exceptional mo moment within a political continuum that runs from individual right to state violence. It holds that in the absence of law enforcement, an individual has the natural or self-evident right to protect their person, property, and or family. So the common sense notion there has most of the basic components of what we understand to be the juridical definition of self-defense that is sort of embodied in the way people read the Second Amendment in the U.S., for example, but it's not limited to that. And it has some of the core components of the relationship between the act of self-defense and the totality. So it says, in the absence of law enforcement. And so that's an important political point mm -hmm. because... Not all communities are going to say, here's what I'm going to do in the absence of law enforcement, because law enforcement is not just absent. There isn't just a continuity between my individual right and the state. So I've tried to work, and this is still working, I'm, I'm, I keep working around the edges of this. 
by contrast, I, I talk about emancipatory community self-defense, and I, I view this to encompass something like Robert F. Williams' work, even though he didn't phrase it this way. But that book is important to the entire discussion as I make it in Philosophy of Anti-Fascism and elsewhere. So emancipatory community self-defense fosters autonomy and solidarity for socially vulnerable groups. It is organized against the antagonism of police oppression. So there's no presumed continuum between community action and police power. And this communal form of self-defense is often not protected by the quote-unquote right of self-defense extended by the state. And so with that definition, we can say Self-defense is, this is why I talk about it being an individual right. When a community talks about doing it, that doesn't align with the juridical concept. There is the aspect where it is organized very commonly in antagonism with official police forces. And then it's trying to, to there's the aspect of the emancipatory part, which is to say there's some autonomy, solidarity. And there's an aspect that's the harder part to try to unpack, which is to say, in my view, what justifies it is, and makes it emancipatory rather than just community self-defense, is that it has to be organizing something that is more egalitarian, that you are putting up or composing or constituting institutions that are more egalitarian than the status quo. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's really the hard part to get at about where that is. But at least conceptually, we can identify it because we can say, okay, we can think of cases where this would, this would fit. So Robert F. Williams, I think, was extremely important to that. Why was it him? Well, I do know the interview you're talking about, and I know which person uh, yeah. had his career ended in the United States. I was um, <laughs> I was vague intentionally, but I figured you'd know yeah. it, there's only one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I think it's telling that the, the treatment of that interview compared to the numerous podcasts I've done and the writing I've done that we've obviously been treated differently in how people will go after certain people because I've never had anyone say this has crossed the line that you're talking about Robert F. Williams um, mm -hmm. and so you know I need to acknowledge that there's that in the sort of power structure of academia and targeting right but that book why did it show up in a book on anti-fascism I did it because I knew that book was important to the civil rights movement and I was borrowing some of that and after the book was finished I talked to people that were more embedded in activism in the 90s and they said excerpts were being printed as pamphlets and circulated amongst anti-fascists and ARA in the 1990s. And that's at least, I'm sure, even longer. But when you're trying to find the history, you want to be accurate about dates. The longest I can find someone that I can credibly point to and say, this person told me he saw this and this time was, you know, the, the mid-90s or late 90s. So I know at least that far back. It'd be hard for me to imagine that the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, for example, in the 80s didn't circulate this stuff. But the core thing about it that makes it so important is that Robert F. Williams' argument undermines the idea that there's two phases to the civil rights movement, one which was nonviolent and then one which became violent around 1964, right? Because he's describing instances that happened in 1957 and beyond. And I think that is one of the core motives for including it in the book to undermine that narrative and to complicate it because that needs to be complicated because that story is a bit too simple. The second one that's really important that I, I always try to make sure I capture is that Williams does not observe geographically bounded community self-defense because we, we typically say 
Community self-defense is a thing you do in a kind of community where we envision Monroe, North Carolina to have on the other side of the tracks is the black community. Mm -hmm. And he does talk about defending that community. Absolutely. However, a lot of his book describes being armed in public in order to defend people who were doing things like protesting the segregation of the swimming pool. And so there's not a respect for geographically bounded areas, but rather community spaces in general. And that's, I think, cashed out when you read the rest of the sort of revision of the civil rights movement and the armed side of it. So like uh, Charles Cobb Jr.'s book chronicles quite a bit um, the different times where where everyone knew there was an armed component, but that that has disappeared in the way that the story is told. And so that's an important part of that discussion that I think needs to be there. And that's what I wanted to get at. What can it help us with understanding anti-fascist work? Well, we tend to say one argument against militant anti-fascism and going where they go is they go, well, that's not in a community or whatever. Well, it begs a question about community, first of all, and modern urban spaces with gentrification and, and lots of other problems um, also make it difficult to try to say what's community. Often it's not bounded by geography because they're community spaces for people that are embattled or marginalized. The transgender community meets in certain places. Well, many of them don't live in these areas where they meet. They find a central location because they can't afford to be in the central location mm -hmm. or various things. And so when they meet and they decide, you know, they want to go do participate in militant anti-fascist action or something like this, you can't just say, well, where do you all live or something like this? Because that's going to not make any sense of all this because that's not how the modern or contemporary organization of space works. So I really wanted to go after that kind of argument that was like, well, it makes sense if you got a bounded community and, you know, there's all this. And I said, I, that doesn't reflect, that doesn't reflect the 1950s, first of all, and it doesn't reflect our time. I wanted to ask if possible, if there's enough time, a question about the definition you gave, your definition of fascism at the beginning. So going back to that initial definition, which one of the things you said is that it has uh, a potential mass base. And I was wondering if you could say something about in the lay of the land in 2023, where you see the potentiality for organizing a mass base uh, in a kind of broadly fascist project. And it's not that I don't think it's necessarily there. I think that, you know, you've got marginal, I think relatively marginal, but nonetheless still dangerous, like groups like Oath, Ke Oath Keepers and um, and Proud Boys. But one of the things that's like struck me in trying to think about the problem of, I don't know, emergent fascism, there's a lot of discourse that sounds super fashy. But one of the problems that I encounter trying to think about the potential for fascistic politics in the contemporary time is that people are just so unbelievably hollowed out, individuated and atomized. And um, I wonder about the, the ability for cohesive like how how close are we potentially to a large scale mobilization of organized fascist groupings? You know what I mean? What is your sense of this potentially mass base? What is its class basis? This potential mass base of fascism. Um, otherwise, the risk is that it looks like it's something like anti-fascism is something that's only really applicable in marginal in marginal and relatively rare cases of a community that encounters like an organized group of like radical right wingers. And then they're the force that shows up and opposes them. You see what I mean? I'm asking about a kind of larger macro look at like where fascist and anti-fascist forces sit. Yeah, that's a that's good. So there's two questions in there in a way. One of them is how do I phrase this? One of them is the big picture of is anti-fascism marginal. What I wanted to speak to just real quickly on this is this is actually I think a 
um, a misperception of, of the three-way fight position that comes up sometimes is that what people will say is you're looking at this and you're focusing on these kind of marginal groups that are potentially a mass base but never really quite get there. And what are you doing about the big picture? Now, I'm not saying that's what your question was, but it's actually a misperception that comes up quite a bit. And the answer to that is that the, th the three-way fight position is is incredibly interested in the big picture in the state. It's just that it's trying to handle a particular problem that emerges from a kind of revolutionary perspective, which is how do you handle far-right groups? So it actually has a perspective on, well, how do you handle capitalism or how do you handle these other things? Well, that's going to require whatever your revolutionary politics looks at. So um, some of the originals, I'll, I'll say, you know, there's anarchists and, and sort of Leninists in the, the original group of people that sort of formulated the three-way fight. So there'd be, that's why I say it depends on your revolutionary politics. Some of them say, it's, you know, it's organizing the vanguard party and doing whatever. Others would appeal to anarchist forms of organization that are directly aimed at state power or aimed at institutions. But the question was, but what about this other thing that's popping up that's opposed to the state or nominally or, or rhetorically opposed to certain kinds of capitalism or accumulation that seems to also be bubbling up from the right and what are they doing? And so I'm just addressing that because that's a very common um, thing I get in academic circles, especially because I, I might be the only academic defending an explicit three-way fight position. Uh, I'm not sure. I think there's a couple others, but they don't really use the language as much. Like I said, Stas Vysotsky is there, and I know some other people that kind of bring it up, but I was just at a conference in, uh, about anti-fascism, and most of the positions were not that. It, it was a Hofstra conference that was there, and most of it was not framed in those ways. So I know that when anti-fascists all got together, it was still um, a relatively outside position in that academic context. So I want to clear up first that misperception. The second one is really difficult that is worth debating. And, and one of the other things I really appreciate from the three-way fight perspective, the group of people that talk about this stuff, is that they constantly question things like, what is the class composition of this? And there's no real, there's no, let's say, line that's the position. So um, I've tried to work through some of it. So it's potentially mass-based because you could say, you look at Unite the Right or you look at various other things, they were trying to build a street-based organization for what was mainly an online thing. And the question was, well, how do you stop that thing from moving from one thing to the other? And I think it was a successful thing. Militant anti-fascism got in there, put a cost on organizing on the ground, and that thing, and the far right's initial plan, where I think they thought it was going to be relatively heroic, fell apart very rapidly and led to tons of infighting, splintering, what is it, you know, the, all the kinds of things, blaming each other, cop jacketing, snitch jacketing, doing all the stuff, you kind of watched all that come, come right through. Now, the class part. This is an interesting one, and, and I, I like this question in the sense that it allows me to at least say one thing that, that comes into some of the work that, that I'm doing from this, is that I think in the United States and in Canada, there's generally a misrecognition of what the working class is, and that part of the three-way fight position and part of a lot of anti-racist action position, whether it's from, again, I, I sort of trace it back to the Sojourner Truth Organization because that's kind of me trying to build a big picture of kind of where did three-way fight come from in a project I'm trying to work on. But it's from other ones. There's third worldists that get into this and they'd say, the core argument here is we've misrecognized what the working class is in the US. We have a default concept of it of basically a white 
male labor aristocracy is the old point of the term but you would say worker elite in the sense that it has a very specific definition of what that elite is is that they make compared to the rest of the globe a shit ton of money relatively for the work that they perform and that the theory is that this means that they have different interests than other groups that are that we would more point to as working class and part of the, my biggest problem with you would say sort of the the left from its instantiations with the democrats through social democratic parties is that the default picture of the working class is still this white male working class that that flourished under so, the social welfare state and labor peace between world the end of world war 2 and uh, whenever you say ne- neoliberalism started and they always point to it they oh, what about this group and it's like well the working class composition changed quite a bit and that there's when you look at it there's lots of labor that's not included in there and that exclusion itself is pointing to a distinction that we need to recognize and what i view it as no matter how we put the terms on it is that a lot of this base of the far right is people that have this status anxiety not necessarily even a declining standard of living but a status anxiety related to their class position and a lot of their targets are are marginalized or in battle groups that are doing worse but they they're worried about sinking down into that and not having that distinction and i think that reflects their idea without trying to get into the whole economics of it which is a very complex story it at least represents some of the ideological issues that are present that link it back to the classic cases of fascism where you'd find some of those groups emerge the last thing i want to dispel is it's not fascism is not a working class or rural anachronism which is what it's treated as very commonly in discourse like these backwards people they don't know the, any better that's not it at all even historically lots of historians that are doing the classical academic historian thing this isn't just militants or radicals or communists doing this they've gone back and they've done the sociology of the original movements and while the working class is present it's not the predominant group in in relationship to society working class people joined fascist movements at a lower percentage than other class strata and we need to have all those details there because we don't get at the heart of what's at the class base of fascism if we just try to work it out like that so I'll at least point to one concrete example of this is that I recently reviewed Shane Burley's book Why We Fight and there's a long there's different discussions of class where he talks about fascism as a working class movement and most of my review is dedicated towards trying to introduce say I think I know what you're getting at but let's put a lot of nuance and complexity into this so it ends up being a very long review um where I try to identify a lot of the different dynamics so that it's not just that kind of thing Richard Spencer, you know, Richard Spencer was, you know, trying to work on a MA at what is it, University of Chicago, I think. At one point about Adorno and why Adorno was resentful and things like this, like this Oh. Leave my <laughs> it's, boy it's, alone. <laughs> it's bad. Um and then he has a whole he has an origin story for how he got into the far right about how he was it's attached to intellectual production right oh well all these people they wouldn't accept this kind of thesis cuz it undermined their dude and now here i am you know a much more salt of the earth person who doesn't have all this intellectual whatever here um you can go read that stuff and he goes through that kind of thing and what i did me to this was clara zetkin's essay that gets that was republished by haymarket about fascism has this one passage where it's like you know you're in trouble when kind of in the way i'm sort of again being sort of like 
informal about it. You know you're in trouble when all of a sudden a bunch of, a bunch of intellectuals don't find their natural side to be crossing over to the working class and instead, by virtue of their class position, by virtue of economics, by virtue of gutting their, their future prospects, they start floating over and lending their intellectual efforts over to the right. And I thought, gee, this looks really familiar in that. So there's, there's a lot of difficult um, and complex dynamics in there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. I think we're going to have to call it there, though. We'd like to thank you again, uh, Devin Zane Shaw, for joining us. Devin, would you like to tell our audience about where they can find you online or anything you've got coming up? Yeah, so I, I'm sort of on Twitter when I'm not really busy at Devin Z. Shaw. Let's see what's coming up. I'm trying to finish a book with, which includes that long essay about Judith Butler, and it really needs like one more piece to really make it happen. And I have a prospective publisher but they still have to look at it. So that's something. And then the big news that uh, I can't remember if I said it at the start of the episode, so I'm just going to say it again, is that I talked to the the people that work over at Three Way Fight and I, I said I'm a frequent contributor. I might have more of a identity with them than, than that. I never know if it's we or they or whatever in the sense of like, am I talking about them or am I part of the decision making? because I've been contributing quite a bit. But I did run it by them so that I could announce that the three-way fight does have an anthology coming, um, hopefully sometime within the next year, that collects a lot of the work that they think is essential to that. I've seen the table of contents. I think it's a fantastic um, selection that has lots of stuff in it that's going to be worth looking at um, from that perspective across a lot of different things. Like it's not just their interest isn't just, you know, sort of street fighting, but it actually goes into quite a bit of detail about um, various forums and, and different places where you can talk about these kinds of issues, including actually, I think one of my favorite pieces that was written, it was like the anti-obituary for Tom Metzger um, called American Strasser. And I think it's, it's still an excellent essay of, of how to handle what happens when one of these really awful people that's responsible for the rise of the modern far right dies and, and how do you actually account for that? What's their legacy? What's their negative legacy? It's on the website. I didn't write it, so I'm just pro I'm just giving props to someone else here. But I think that's going to be a really good anthology that will help people understand the the bigger perspective. And I really hope my next thing that I put out is is going to do a good job of that because it's all stuff after 2020, and so it tries to cover a lot of the things that happened between January of 2020 all the way until this year at some point. So there's a lot going on and. Uh, and the, those are the things I would say to look out for. And, and please pick up Philosophy of Anti-Fascism. It's a pandemic book. It literally was delayed at the onset of the pandemic in April of 2020. <laughs> it's doing all right. I'm not complaining as a book. It could do better, attention. though. <laughs> but it's a, it, Let's juice. It's a, it's a pandemic book, and it still needs some, some love and attention um, due to that. Cool. And I still think some of this is incredibly relevant, at least in challenging some of the concepts about how to do philosophy and, and what philosophy can do. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, everybody. New episodes of What's Up to Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Blake, Matthew, Oana Pop, Starly Grass, Derek Mensch, Kevin Holt, Brandon, Torsten Manga, Katrina Forrester, Ted, Emilio Valadez, Emily Harnett, Sophie Pruitt, Justin Scanlon, Daniel Nowak, Jacob Lipton, 
Jack Polizzi, Gabriel Levine Brislin, and Billy Holt. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos and access to our Discord server. In addition, you can support us by buying some Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find at our website. Please follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care, everyone.